Well, I'm Pastor Shannon, and we are picking back up today in our, uh, in our discussion of being at peace and how we can be a people uh, who are in peaceful relationships with peaceful conversations. Today is our last week in the actual study of conversation peace. And so today we'll do a little bit of a wrap-up. But I think any time you're going to do a wrap-up, you need to wrap up with something that's memorable. And this time of year is one of the neater times of year in Wisconsin. Not only um, because of the autumn, <clears throat> excuse me, and all the beautiful leaves we get to look at, and the change of weather and early snow and all that fun stuff. This is also the time of the year of the cranberry harvest. Have any of you had a chance to go see this year or any other year cranberries being harvested? Have you gotten to see that around yet? No? Wow, that's too bad because cranberry harvest is a genuinely beautiful thing to see. The two places in the, in the world where the most cranberries are harvested and grown take place in two states. One of them is Massachusetts and the other one is Wisconsin. Now I got to see a cranberry harvest for the very first time in New Jersey. We're up in Garden City, New Jersey. I was in college and went home with a group of friends to, to this, this, this place. And uh, her parents owned several hundred bogs, several hundred acres of bogs in Garden City area in New Jersey. And I'd never heard of anything like this, but we went right, right around harvest time. And it's about 1990 or 91, as I remember. And uh, it was mind-boggling. I'd never seen anything like this. Here are these, these areas that just looked like lakes to me, because I didn't know any difference, but lakes separated by these berms and gorgeous trees. And on the surface of all of them is just solid red with cranberries. And so in my mind, it must mean that cranberries just grow in the water and float to the top. That's what I was, I didn't know the difference. Some of you know the difference, but you're from here, so don't laugh too hard. And so as we were, uh, as we were seeing this, it was just amazing how gorgeous it was. And I started to learn something about cranberries that I thought was apropos for today. Um, first of all, every year, just for scale, between Wisconsin and Massachusetts, 8 million 50-gallon barrels of cranberries are harvested, with New Jersey being a distant third. Those two states produce five, or sorry, 8 million 50-gallon barrels of cranberries. They go into over 700 food and beverage items in the United States and around the world, and they really do produce a spectacular harvest. And one of the neat things about the harvest of cranberries is it is a huge tourist industry. People come in because it is impressive to watch it happen. Now, have you ever seen it? Anybody as you're thinking about it now? One of the cool things is that as the cranberries uh, have risen to the surface, they put these, these floating boards that are wrapped in, in kind of a plastic, and they put them all around the outside of the bog right before they flood it. And they flood the bog, and, and the cranberries all have four air pockets inside. It's the nature of the cranberry to want to float. And so when they flood the bog, the cranberries come to the top. And they go through with a little machine and agitate and then they pull all the cranberries together. And as they pull them together, there's this incredibly beautiful harvest and people come to take pictures and to see it and to participate. It's kind of hard to mess it up once they get it started. But all of that pretty harvest and all that neat story and all the beauty of it, it really follows an especially long and detailed cultivation process. You see, cranberries, in order to prepare the bog, is one of the most expensive in all of agriculture at the rate of $30,000 an acre to prepare the cranberry bog for the first time. You have to completely eradicate any of the living 
um, uh, foliage that's in that area. And you have to amend the soil to be half sand and half peat. And that's how they amend it and prepare the soil. It's a tremendous investment. And so for the, for the agriculturalists, the farmers who do this, uh, it takes an average of five years before the bog actually starts to produce a realistic harvest. The investment in time it takes after, after, for this to happen really turns the corner at the 15-year mark. And I remember hearing this from my friends in, in New Jersey telling us this next thing. After 15 years, the return on investment is dramatic in the cranberry industry. It's dramatic. It's not like corn or soy or some of the other ones where, where you, you expect a return and you kind of take insurance on it. In the cranberry industry, as it turns out, when harvest time comes after that 15th year, it's mind-boggling the profit margins. But to get to that point, it took years of discipline and intention and cultivation and practice and preparation this is a lot of what we're talking about in our conversations and in our relationships with regards to peace. And so if we're going to have a peaceful harvest, that return on investment we're talking about, it's going to take a lot of intentionality and a lot of years to get to that place where you are known as a person of peace, where your relationships are typified by peace. Friends, it doesn't mean that you go out one day and say something peaceful and the rest of your life is going to be at peace. It's going to take time, habit, and lifestyle to cultivate for that. Galatians 6 verses 5 through 10 is up on the screen. It reads like this, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful natures will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. The author of our study we looked at over this past month and a half or so is, is Mary Kaysen. And the lead-in to her study says this. It says, transformed speech will result in a harvest of peaceful conversations. Now, we entered into this study as a church not just because the, the, the pastor standing up here saying, I got this, I got the lock on this, I got this handled, I have so much to teach you. We entered into this study largely because it's an area where I've, tr I've struggled. I've tried to learn how to be better at being peaceful in my conversations and edifying in my conversations, more positive, less critical, more encouraging, less demeaning. This is, this is a challenge for me. And so I know if it's a challenge for me, I'm probably not the only one. And as we were doing the research uh, into this, what we discovered is that this is one of the more popular studies that's still going on. Do you know that this conversation piece study has been around since 1974? But since 1974, it's become more and more and more popular over the years because of the fact that in our culture and our society today, as it turns out, rather than being a people who are known for peace, our society and our culture continues to be racked with depression, with self-loathing, with doubt racked with suicides, racked with violence, racked with protest and hatred and division. We turn on the news if you dare, and you're not going to find harmony or good news. What you're going to find is more tension, more division, more hatred, more separating of people. This is not what the people of God are called to be. The people of God are called to be a people at peace and a people of peace. In 2 Corinthians 9, 10, it says, Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply, supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest 
of your righteousness. Now, this is Paul challenging the church there in Corinth, and he's discussing this return on righteousness. If we're going to be a people who bring peace to our culture and transform our community by loving God and others, if we're going to be that as Christians, it means that we have to be a people who are perpetually sowing the seeds of peace in our conversation and our relationships. We are sowing seeds of righteousness so that when the time comes for the harvest, we will harvest precisely what we have sown. But it's a rule in agriculture, and it works all around the world. This is why this happens in agriculture. You plant one seed, <clears throat> and you get a dramatic return on investment from that seed. Anybody ever garden before? Anybody ever do this? Okay. What happens if you plant one seed for a corn, one little corn kernel, and you put it in a row? What happens with that one kernel? It grows, and it forms a stalk, and it makes an ear of corn. Are there more kernels on the ear of corn than you planted? We have an interesting, th Kim and I live on, a, on our, in the family, we live on, on acreage. And so all around us, the farmer um, plants uh, a crop each year. And it's been corn the last few years and it got all fungusy and gross. So this year he did soybean and it was cool when they were putting it in. We weren't sure what they were planting this year. So it's always an exciting thing. I wonder what's going to be all around the house. And um, <clears throat> the, the kids went out and they found a couple of the seeds that had been planted that didn't quite get turned over by the furrow. So they brought it out and and they went to look it up on the internet and find out what it was. Found out it was soy. I was like, okay, cool. They're planting soy this year. And so he planted who knows how many hundreds of thousands of soybean seeds out there in the field. But each seed pops up and it produces a soybean plant. And each plant seems to have, from what we can tell, anywhere from 12 to 20 pods on each plant. And each pod tends to have anywhere from three to five beans in it. That's a pretty dramatic return on investment, isn't it? And so this year, when he started to harvest, I think what the farmer realized is he had this bumper crop. And with all the rain and with all the good conditions, he's got loads and loads of soy. And he keeps hauling truckload and truckload and truckload off the ground, off the land. And now it's too wet. And I'm afraid what's going to happen now is he's going to still have a bunch of it sitting there in the spring. But what he planted is what he will harvest. He didn't go out into the field this year and start harvesting pumpkins. Somebody tell me why. Oh, he didn't harvest wheat. Somebody tell me why. Okay, he's not harvesting corn. Somebody tell me why. Because he sprayed the corn with Roundup. And so any of the corn that thought it was going to come up, he I'm just kidding. He planted soy, and so that's what he's going to harvest. Listen. The righteousness that you plant is the righteousness you're more likely to harvest. So what we did in the course of our studies, we looked at several things, and I want to review those with you. We talked about the cause and effect. We talked about navigation. We talked about the exchange. We talked about the open gates. We talked about construction or laying track. We talked about being educatable, instructable, and we talked about the return. So what I want to do today is walk you through a summary of what we've looked at this past seven weeks and see how this now applies in the lives of we as the people of Jesus who are seeking to live transformed lives and create a return on that investment of peace. First of all, peace is the absence of inner strife. For a definition, peace is the absence of inner strife. Do you find yourself uptight? Do you find yourself with a lot of anxiety? Do you find yourself angry? Do you find that you have a hard time forgiving? Do you find that you're always ready to argue? Do you find that you're on edge? Or do you find that you're at peace, that you walk into every situation with the best hopes for it? 
Do you get up in the morning looking forward to your day? Do you go to work anticipating great things are going to happen? Do you engage with your spouse on a positive with the start of a happy? Do you, do you engage with your siblings? Do you engage with your neighbors, with your friends in a place that begins positive? Or are you doing something other than living with seeds of righteousness? Are you sowing seeds of non-righteousness, of anger, of bitterness, of strife, of dissension? Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says this, do not worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, instead of worrying, instead of anxiety, which is an opposite of peace, we're to be going to God in prayer. Now, let's be honest and join me with me in an exercise. How many of you expect, honestly, that over the next, oh, let's say week, you're going to be disappointed or frustrated about something? Okay, okay. Pretty much everybody should raise a hand at this point because that's kind of living life, right? You're, you're going to encounter frustration or disappointment in life. Don't worry about that, but take it to God in prayer. This is the instruction that Paul is giving the church there in Philippi, and he's teaching them how to live in peaceful relationships between God and God's creation. And that starts with when you encounter challenge, struggle, disappointment, strife, letdown, frustration, take it to God in prayer. Paul even said, I pray constantly, pray constantly, constantly be in conversation with God. And then that peace that's with God can transform you and your understanding. This verse we've read each week. We started week one, though, as we were talking about transforming by transforming our speech. Conversation peace begins with conversation speech. Uh, peach, speech, peace. Easy for me to say, speech, peace. There we go. James 3, 1 through 6 reads like this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. James, the brother of Jesus, is teaching the church there in Jerusalem this central thought and this central theme, and that's that if we're going to be a people of peace, if we're going to be at harmony with one another, the words that we use are going to determine the direction that our conversations and our relationships go. James used three illustrations. He spoke of the rudder of a ship, the bridle in a horse's mouth, and a fire. All three of those things create movement. All three create tension. They create turbulence. When you pull on the horse's bridle, it creates tension on that side of the horse, and it turns the horse that direction. The rudder of a ship, as it turns, it creates turmoil. It creates turbulence on that side, and that's the side the ship turns into. We always turn into turbulence, and this is what the tongue can do. It creates turbulence. It creates movement. It creates tension. And that's either positive or negative tension. So James was speaking this to the church there in Jerusalem early on. Two lessons came out of this first week. We said, Scripture calls the people of God to be a people at peace. In other words, if you are a Christian person, if you are a Jesus-loving Christ follower, you are called to be a people at peace, a person at peace. 
And specifically, Scripture declares that through Jesus Christ, we are able to be at peace with God and with people. You can't really be at peace with God unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not possible. But you can have peace with people because you're at peace with God. And if you're at peace with God, you become a peaceful person. It becomes your identity. And so we also talked about the, real, the reality of cause and effect. The peace inside of you will cause peace outside of you. It is the effect of the true nature of who you are. And we looked at that in three ways. We talked about the soil and the harvest, the well and the bucket, and the heart and the mouth. And with the well and the bucket, what we said was simply that. Okay, we'll try it one more time. You don't have to do the southern accent. You just do it straight up. What's in the well comes up in the bucket. Or in Hayward Watts, my granddad style, what in the well come up in the bucket. So that's how you say it. You can't drop a bucket into a saltwater well and pull up fresh water. It's not in there. You can't tap into the heart of an angry, bitter, vindictive, grudge-holding, spiteful person and pull out words and action of peace and grace and forgiveness and graciousness. At the same time, if you drop that bucket into the well, if you engage a person who is a person who is loving, noble, kind, gracious, holy, patient, gentle, tender-hearted, kind, compassionate. If you engage that person with the same challenges or frustrations all of us will encounter, what's going to come out in the bucket that came out of their well is going to be reactions that are peaceful and kind and gentle and loving and gracious and compassionate. This is a message that we all need to hear and understand. Jesus said this, the good man brings good things out of the good treasure of his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil treasure of his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This drew us to a lesson that I think we need to constantly be thinking about. Each one of us represents soil. Our heart, our mind, our spirit is a soil. And seeds are going to come to the same soil to all people. The same seed is going to find its place in your heart, but the soil of your heart is what's going to come out in the produce. We used an illustration that week of a contaminated field. If you live on soil that is contaminated, you can plant good seed in contaminated soil, and what kind of produce are you going to get? Contaminated. If you take good seed and you put it in arid uncared for, weed-filled soil, what kind of return on investment should you expect? A poor one. You see, you as a person are soil. You remember when Jesus talked about the parable of the sower and the seed, and he went and he talked about he cast the seed and some fell on rocky ground and others fell on the path and it was trod underfoot. Others fell among thorns and others fell on good soil. And among the good soil, those very same seeds produced a bountiful harvest. But if you threw it on rocky, hard soil, it just didn't produce. That soil is you and me, friends. How many of us go through life with an attitude of, of, of bitterness, an attitude, attitude of entitlement, an attitude of suspicion, an attitude of, 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 of aggressiveness, 
the same seed that falls in that soil will produce a harvest of those kinds of behaviors. But if like Jesus, and if if like the words of Paul, we live according to that which is true and noble and right, what is pure, what is lovely, is admirable, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy, filled with peace and love and kindness and gentleness and long-suffering and understanding, compassion. When seeds fall on that, they produce that kind of fruit. So you see, the seed represents stimulus. The seed represents actions done to you. The seed represents other people engaging with you, relationships. Do you have a neighbor? Do you have a boss? Do you have a sibling? Do you have a spouse? Do you have a friend? Do you have an adversary? Do you have an employee? Do you drive a car with people on the road? What's going to happen? You're going to have people become seeds to you. Their behavior affects you in accordance to the kind of soil you are, not necessarily to who they are. And that's why that week when we were doing this in week two, I told you, and I hope you all remember this and live by this, being offended is a choice. Offense will come your way. You make a choice to be offended. Do you understand? Just because somebody's rude doesn't mean you have to be offended. Somebody can be rude to you and you can think, oh man, that's really too bad. I wonder what's wrong with them, why they would behave like that. That's too bad. Hey God, give them some peace. I'm choosing not to let that bother me because clearly that's coming from a place where they're hurting or they're upset or they're at pain. Or you can say, how dare you talk to me, the most important person in the world that way. I, who deserve nothing but your best, have received less than the best. Therefore, I am offended. You see, we've made a choice. You get the hyperbole, right? Okay. But we make decisions about being offended. We also make decisions about if we're offensive to people. And our offensiveness is seed that we sow in them. And if you sow an offensive seed in godly soil, that offense won't grow. You start to see what Paul's illustration and Jesus's illustration about the soil and the harvest is all about. We have to ask some questions as we moved out of that week, and I challenged you to ask some of these things in your own life. First of all, am I surrounding myself with the right kind of people? Because your soil is determined by your environment. Are you surrounding yourself with the right kind of people? And here's one we all need to struggle with. Are the influences from media appropriate for a Jesus follower? This is everybody asking yourself this question. Just do a little inventory. What are you watching? Okay. What are, what are you binging? What are you listening to? What are you reading? What are you looking at on the news channels in the morning? What are you listening to? What are you filling your hearts and your mind, your thought life with? You see, that's the kind of influence that will eventually determine the kind of soil you are. It will amend your soil. Were my parents good influencers or role models? Am I being overly sensitive, selfish, or prideful? Have I not stored up enough good in my heart? Are my circumstances simply unhealthy? We as people need to be asking these questions bravely. Why do I have the attitude? Why is my soil the way it is? And sometimes by asking these questions, we can diagnose the problems in our own soil. So then the third week we moved into what was my favorite um, at that point, which was, which was the gates. This is a brilliant piece of poetry, and it really comes out of Ezekiel and out of Proverbs. In the ancient world, here's how it worked. Every city had walls around it. Any city of size would have walls all around it. And you would enter the city through the gate. And the gate of the city would be the best 
foot forward. A really strong military power would have an amazing, powerful gate with you know archers and, and bars and all kinds of good stuff on it. <clears throat> Truly wealthy cities like, like Babylon and some of the areas of Assyria would have these lavish gates. Uh, famously in Babylon, there's one that was covered in blue lapis. The entire um, front of this gated area was covered in blue lapis and gold reliefs. And so you would come up and just be awed at the wealth and the beauty of this city. That's how you encountered the city first, and that's how you entered. And the main street of the city, which stretched away from that gate in inside the walls, was lined with beautiful buildings that were just gilded and gorgeous with marble and, and lots of things growing on it and tapestries and, and the lapis again. And it was just beautiful. And as you entered the city, this is what you would experience. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, you would go down side streets and get deep down into the, the boroughs of the neighborhood where you would start to see some of the less perfect parts of that city. And so in the book of Proverbs, the wisest king who ever lived used this phrase. He says, whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. And whoever builds up high gates invites destruction. What Paul was, uh, Paul, what the Proverbs is trying to show you, what Solomon is trying to instruct young Lemuel in is this. Your gate, this, this demeanor, this facial expression, this way you engage with people, your most overt personality, this thing is your gate. And people will respond to the gate. They will treat you in accordance with the gate. Is your gate happy? Is your gate welcoming? Are you friendly? Do you have a demeanor that, that, that says out loud, I'm happy to meet you? I'm, I'm happy to engage with you? Then the way people will engage you most likely is exactly that way. But if you're bitter, if you're mean, if you're always scowling, if you're defensive, if you're an offended person, then that's the way people are going to want to engage you because that's the natural reaction. We will respond in accordance with your gate. And so we were, excuse me, we were asking ourselves that week, what does your gate look like? Ask yourself, look in the mirror, ask somebody who knows you, somebody who likes you, and then ask this question, what would it be like to be your friend? What would it like, be like to be your spouse? How would you like to be your neighbor? What gate have you set up to allow other people to enter into personal relationship and interaction with you? We talked also about constructing peace, and we use this term laying track. If you're going to travel on a train, you're going to need to lay track. And the train is going to travel in direct accordance and in comfort based upon how well you laid the track. Same thing with the road. If you lay a crummy road, nobody wants to drive on it. If you lay a road that's got lots of potholes and dips and winds back and forth, then it's, it's difficult to drive on, and it's not as productive. It's, it's not as enjoyable. Peaceful relationships do not happen by accident. They, we must plan for and construct the pathways for peaceful relationships to move along. And as we talked about laying tracks, we said there's some tracks we can lay that help our relationships move along more smoothly and more effectively with less interruption, with less danger. And we said being faithful. We lay tracks of honesty, tracks of tenderheartedness, and tracks of compassion. And those last two really speak to, we lay tracks whereby we hear what other people are saying, we understand what they're going through, we seek to grasp who they are and why they react that way, and that's how we respond back to them appropriately. These are laying tracks upon which our relationship will travel. If your first interaction with somebody is mean, 
chances are you're either going to have to apologize and repair that meanness or the relationship going forward is always going to be one that's rude. There's a shop here in town. I'm not going to talk about or tell you the place, but the person who sits at the front desk of this place is always rude. And I don't mean a little rude. This lady, God bless her, she must just have a horrible home life going on. I remember the first time I went, this is nearly 11 years ago, I went in to get a service done at this particular place. And I went in and I said, hey, I need to do such so. And she went, mm-hmm. Okay. And she was just super, super dismissive. And so I had to ask her again and she points to this sign on the wall that had something told me where to go. Oh, okay. So I did. And over the years, I've just come to expect that's how she's going to act. Funny thing happened a couple weeks ago or months ago. I went in and I didn't have cash. I had to pay with a card. And I said, oh, yeah. And I'm always friendly just because I think it's a game at this point. And I went in and told her what I needed. She's like, mm. And I said, I have to pay with the card. She goes, oh. <sighs> Grabs and puts the calculator down and she adds whatever percentage it is, you know, for the thing. I was like, okay, I guess it's great to be in business in Door County. No? Okay. So she takes the card from me like this. Swipes it in the machine, and literally, I, I told Kim about this when I got home. She literally did this with the card. Drops it on the counter. Doesn't even look at me. Drops it on the counter. <laughs> you just added what it cost you to do business. I don't know why you have to be nasty. I didn't say that. So anyway, I put it in my pocket, and I'm laughing the whole time. I'm thinking this is hysterical because I choose to respond to her that way. Now, is there another way that I could respond to her? You know what I bet? I bet most people have responded that other way. And I think it's just reinforced who she is. And I think it's just reinforced those tracks in her life. And I bet you that's how it is at her house. And I bet you that's how it is with her kids. So why would I want to travel down that track with her? Why would you, when somebody's rude to you, Choose to be rude and spiteful and vindictive and mean back. You make a choice if you want to travel down that path or not. Or you can lay tracks in a different direction. Here's what I like to think. One of these years, <laughs> she's going to be friendly. Maybe. But what I would like to think is someday if she chooses to be friendly, it'll be me she's friendly to. Because I've at least laid the tracks for her to be friendly. Maybe I'm naive. We moved into this issue of being teachable and being peaceful. Nobody knows it all. You realize that? You are not the smartest person in the room. I'm not saying it's me. I'm just saying you know this experience when, when you're around people that are smarter than you and the sudden realization that you're not the smartest person in the room. Don't you love that feeling? I hate it. I hated it in school. And I, I think I'm kind of sizing up the class, figuring out how things are going to go. And you always find out there's, there's that one person who's going to ruin the curve for everybody else, right? But here's the thing. Being teachable means that we're always learning. We are always able to receive instruction and become better at who we are and what we do. That's the way to be peaceful. Have you ever seen that person who thinks they're right and then finds out they're wrong and they just get angry about it? Has it been you? Don't look at your don't look at your husband's. Has it ever been that situation where you realize you're wrong and it makes you mad? You see that I'm going to push at you a little bit. That's what we call immaturity. That's an inability to learn. 
It's a pridefulness that instead of learning from the situation, you get angry. And so here's a Christian response. Be teachable. That's a way to peace. We looked at several verses about that. And, uh, and as we did, we were able to experience this, this, this teaching that the more we learn, the more we are able to be a better person, not only in ourselves, but the way we engage with other people. Uh, an interesting passage came from Ezekiel. I love this passage. It's a brilliant picture. What are you doing, machine? Come here. I'm going to lose my cool. There it goes. Um, Ezekiel is interacting with God. And as God is, is talking with Ezekiel, um, God is speaking to Ezekiel in a way that's perfect for him. Ezekiel's a poet. He's a creative guy. And as God's engaging with Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, I'm writing on a scroll for you. And I'm writing words of woe. These are words of lament. These are words of instruction and correction. I'm not saying, attaboy, good job. I'm saying, hey, fool. You did this wrong. Here's how you need to do it. You have wronged me, and this is how you must make it right. And God is, is chastising the people of Israel. It's God's instruction about how you've done it wrong and what you must do to make it right. And God writes it on the scroll, and he hands it to Ezekiel, and he says, open your mouth and eat this. And Ezekiel says, okay. And he takes it, and Ezekiel said, and it was like honey in my mouth. The wounds of a friend, the correction of your God should be something we receive as Christians because it helps us grow. When we're teachable, we can be at peace. But it's foolishness to resist good instruction. It's pridefulness and immaturity to resist good instruction. If somebody is correcting you, hear what they have to say. It doesn't mean you always have to accept it. Sometimes they might be wrong, but at least be bold enough to hear it and learn from it. And understand that the people who love you are going to be the people who want to help you be better. Not because it makes them stronger, but because it makes you stronger. And so we learn from that kind of pseudo-crude little Wisconsin phrase, I've learned to love. If every room you walk in smells like poo, it's you. Don't you want a person who loves you to be the one to say, hey, you know I love you, right? Can I call you out on something? Look, the coffee is on me, but I just feel like because I care, I need to call you out on this. You see, that's how Christian friends and brothers and sisters act towards one another. Not nasty, not vindictive, not condescending, but caring enough to call somebody out. Isn't it great when you find out from a friend rather from someone who hates you? The last example we used in the course of this study was Jesus and his oxen illustration in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what Christ was saying that week is that, look, brothers and sisters, if you will come alongside me, I'll show you how to do it. I'll carry the burden and show you the way. And eventually you'll mature enough up to where just like the young ox who's yoked with the strong ox and doesn't do much at first, eventually the young ox gets tough and strong and knows how to do it because they've walked alongside the master. Jesus is saying, walk alongside with me and I'll show you how to do this. I'll show you how to live life in a way that is peaceful, that is good and godly. This is the lesson we learn in church is that as, as part of being a Christian person is being under mentorship or in relationship or learning from someone who's further along in the faith than you and allowing them to show you how to walk and to live peace. Because you see, brothers and sisters, we harvest exactly what we plant. And if we're going to be a people of peace and at peace, we're going to plant seeds of peace 
and we're going to have peaceful soil that seeds find the rooting in. And that harvest is the harvest that we're looking for. Is it going to be fast and easy? Or is it going to be like the cranberry farmers who've learned that it takes time for that return on investment to really be there? But in the end, the crop is a bumper crop. And it's worth the investment that you put into it. We've closed each week with the scripture I'll close you with again today. And that's in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul challenges the Corinthian Christians as new creatures this way. He says, now anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. I hope that today a new way of living has begun for you. I hope that as we've discussed this subject of peace and we've talked about peace, I hope that each and every one of you have come to the reality that if you are going to experience peace, you must be a person of peace. We need to fill our minds and our thoughts with peacefulness, and we need to sow seeds of peace and righteousness in other people.